0: Thank you, Sarah, for leading us in prayer. Uh, Let me add my welcome to Michael's um, and uh, tell you that we are getting towards the end, just two more uh, of the Sunday mornings in the Book of Acts, um, and we're sort of picking up the pace uh, to get to the finishing line um, in time for the summer. So a little bit of a rattle through a number of chapters uh, to us to arrive at Chapter 26. Let me me set the scene, if I might. Last week, if you were here, we left Paul speaking to the, to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, a, a farewell address, uh, before setting sail uh, from Miletus, uh, stopping once on the way, and arriving in Jerusalem. Uh, on that journey, uh, there was lots of warning to Paul that he faced uh, trouble and persecution, arrest and difficulty uh, when he arrived in Jerusalem, but he pressed on. Uh, those predictions, Uh, came true. Uh, Paul is falsely accused of defiling the temple, uh, and uh, a mob forms, drags him out of the city, uh, and are set upon uh, beating him to death. He's only spared from that when uh, a Roman uh, guard arrives and takes him into custody. Uh, Then begin a whole series of, of trials... Uh, over an extended period of time. Uh, First before the Jewish Sanhedrin, um, and then up in Caesarea, uh, where he is taken, having appealed for Roman justice, because Paul was also a Roman citizen as well as a Jew. Uh, A bit like Jesus, they're just this series of trials. bit like Jesus, he is consistently found innocent of any charge. But a bit like Jesus, he never gets released and death uh, looms. Unlike Jesus, um, who was silent and didn't speak in his defense, but went to death as a sacrificial lamb, unlike Jesus, Paul speaks stridently, uh, speaking of the death of Jesus uh, as the means of salvation. We join the story then in chapter 26. Paul is now up in Caesarea, uh, where he has been for two years. Uh, Felix has uh, handed over as governor to Festus, uh, his successor. Uh, And Paul has appealed to Rome. And Festus has got to write a a summary of the charges, but he's a bit confused, doesn't really know what to write. And when King Agrippa, uh, who is the puppet king, of Judea. Uh, When King Agrippa arrives for a little social visit uh, Festus thinks, oh this is handy I'll get Agrippa, who understands the Jewish religion much better than I do, to quiz Paul and help me get some information so I can write uh, to Rome when I send him Um, and so what we have um, is uh, the interrogation it's not much of an interrogation actually, it's mostly a declaration by Paul his defence of his faith. Um, That's what Satiris is going to read for us now. Uh, Let me pray for us before we do that. Uh, Father God, as we turn to look at this part of uh, the book of Acts, uh, this great defense by the Apostle Paul, uh, help us not just to understand what it meant then, help us to see what it means now for us. Amen.
1: Our reading is from Acts chapter 26, verses 1 to 32, and you can find this on page 1123 in the Church Bibles, page 1123. Acts chapter 26, verses 1 to 32. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, "'Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats.' Then I asked, "'Who are you, Lord?' I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preach that they should repent and turn to God, and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seize me in the temple courts and try to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer, and as at the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense "'You are out of your mind, Paul,' he shouted. "'Your great learning is driving you insane.' "'I am not insane,' most excellent Festus,' Paul replied. "'What I am saying is true and reasonable. "'The king is familiar with these things, "'and I can speak freely to him. "'I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice "'because it was not done in a corner. "'King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? "'I know you do.' Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar.
0: Sirius, thank you very much for reading for us.
1: Um,
0: have you ever changed your mind? I mean, really changed your mind? uh move from something that seemed absolutely clear and obvious and definite to you to something utterly contrary? that. It does happen, doesn't it? Not common, but every now and again. Uh, Rather like the England cricket team at the moment, uh, who for years believed that the way to win test matches was to staunchly and solidly defend at every opportunity, only very gradually waiting for the opportunity for a bad ball to be bold and to to be just a little bit more aggressive. But that's been abandoned. Forget that approach. Now it's basball. ball, Whack. Bash, crash, aggressive from the word go. Uh, And as it turns out, seems to be working, at least for the moment, uh, for wins in a row, uh, including the highest run uh, run chase in history, well, for the England team. It's a great story of transformation. Not quite as great as the story of transformation that we're looking at this morning, of course. Uh, But here, too, is a radical shift of belief. A story so important, this turnaround in the Apostle Paul. So important that Paul, um, that, that Luke chooses to describe Paul's conversion moment three times in Acts. Um, one writer says that this, this historical event, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, uh, is the second most important event in world history second only to the resurrection of Jesus himself. Uh, and he writes that because of the profound impact that the Christian faith has had on uh, the world. We're going to look at it under these three headings. Uh, two deep convictions, one dramatic conversion, and three sources of persuasion. Two deep convictions. That The first conviction is there in verse 9. Uh, where we read that Paul was convinced that he ought to do all that was possible to appease the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Paul, Paul was a, brought up as a Jew, uh, and uh, he says everyone knew how from a child uh, he conformed to the strictest sect of the religion, living as a Pharisee. Paul was no intellectual lightweight, knew his mind and was utterly convinced that it was necessary to oppose this way this new religion that had sparked up Uh, which is why we're told verse 10 or he tells Agrippa that he'd had many of the Lord's people put in prison that when they were put to death he cast his vote against them, that he was so determined that he went from synagogue to synagogue having them punished trying to force them to blaspheme even hunting them down in foreign cities in a sense that's how it works isn't it If you're convinced about something, then you follow through on your actions. It's true for you, it's true for me. What we are persuaded of shapes the way that we live. Yet, of course, sometimes there is a significant gap, isn't there, between what we say that we're convinced about and what functionally in a real kind of day-to-day way, we believe. A difference, if you like, between our professed belief and what actually we believe day-to-day. You could reverse-engineer this, if you like, if I can put it like that. Take a look at what we do. Take a look at the way we spend our time. Take what we invest most time and energy in and track that back and you will find what it is that really matters to us. Not what we say matters to us, but what really matters to us. See, if we spend hours on our phones or hours with the TV, then actually, functionally, those things matter to us hugely, don't they? Whether we say that actually relationships and people and the Christian faith matters more. Paul was convinced he showed it by what he did. And by the end of the passage... Uh, we see a new conviction, an utterly different conviction. Uh, Look how he describes it in verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. In other words, a new conviction has now gripped Paul's heart there has been this radical transformation, this extraordinary change of mind. Convinced of one thing, now convinced of something utterly contrary. He had been convinced that those who believed in this way were worthy of death. Now he believes that those same people are convinced by something that will give them eternal life. And now he doesn't care how much trouble declaring this faith gets him into. In other words, he's a man with the courage of his convictions. Having believed, he acts in line with what he believes. Which is as it should be, isn't it? And perhaps that is unsettling for some of us as we consider that there is too big a gap between what we say that we believe and the way that our lives are actually shaped and that that gap needs closing. So see, the radical nature of the Christian faith is such that there should be a big difference between you and me if you're a Christian believer uh, and the person next door to you who doesn't believe. But is there? Is there that radical gap and difference? So first, two convictions deeply held. Two convictions that are very different. So how did Paul get from one to the other? So come to our second heading, which is one dramatic confrontation. Um, Since Luke seems to want us to hear it many times, let me read it again, picking it up in verse 12. Paul says that on one of these journeys... I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It's such a dramatic moment. But but so fascinating how the shifts take place. There's a blazing light that initially brings blindness, but ultimately enables Paul to bring light to those who are in darkness. There's a confrontation That initially brings Paul to his knees but ultimately sets him up on his feet to go and be a witness to all that he has seen and will see of Jesus Christ. There's a question asked which initially brings confusion but ultimately brings Paul to understand that Jesus is risen from the dead and can bring forgiveness and new life to all who trust In him. See that little phrase? Uh, Jesus says to Paul, It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, God's prodding him, sort of a goad was, sort of pointy stick. Got an animal to go in the direction you wanted it to go. Uh, And Jesus is prodding Paul. And Paul is kicking back. But God won't let up pokes and presses until Paul can't hide anymore. Change is funny, isn't it? The process of changing, not straightforward, not, not easy to do. Uh, you have to be persuaded uh, that change is something that you want, something that you're willing to have. Um, I was hearing a little example of the process of change recently, which I thought was quite intriguing. Um, You think about an ice cube, and you imagine you want to turn it into an ice cone, say. Well, push and push and push, won't do any good. First thing you've got to do is thaw the ice cube. Then you can mould it, and then you could refreeze it into the shape you wanted it. See, See, to change requires that sort of opening up of the readiness to change. But the first step is to think, I could be wrong. And humility demands a readiness to do that. So, two convictions. One, confrontation. And now finally, three sources of persuasion Not so much those that would persuade Paul, but in a sense those that might persuade us. It could be that as you listen to this account of Paul's life being turned upside down, you do so as somebody who's not yet persuaded of the Christian faith yourself. You don't yet believe uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. You don't yet believe that to trust in him will give you eternal life. You don't yet believe that he is able to give you forgiveness, a cleansed relationship with God. Not yet persuaded of that. Uh, Most, I guess, um, are persuaded of those things. But, But for us who do believe, maybe what we need to be persuaded to do is to close that gap I was talking about earlier, the gap between what we say we believe and what we really believe so that our lives are more and more in keeping with our profession of faith. So what are these persuaders? Well, first up is the historical persuader. Because these things happened in history. I do think that's terribly important. I remember when I was a young Christian, uh, and even now I still come back to, um, the historical evidence really mattering to me as a sort of bedrock for faith there really was a Paul who really did persecute Christian believers, who really did meet Jesus risen from the dead on a road to Damascus, and as a result really did stop persecuting believers and started declaring the Christian faith instead. I mean, that actually happened. It happened at a point in history. If we'd been there, we could have seen it just as the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened in history. And if we'd been there, we could have seen that as well. The first century needs explaining, doesn't it? Something happened to change the Apostle Paul's life. Something happened to change 11 frightened men into 11 pioneers of the Christian faith so that within 300 years, the entire Roman Empire had adopted Christianity as its religion. Something happened to cause that explosion of faith. And it wasn't a set of ideas. It was history. It was God intervening in events in history. And that's why when, in verse 24, do you notice that bit? Festus interrupts thinks Paul's gone completely balmy. Accuses him of being insane. And Paul replies wonderfully calmly, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, King Agrippa, he's familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Publicly known, If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, if he hadn't performed all those miracles, then when these accounts of him were written, people would have said, no, that didn't happen, I was there. But they couldn't do that because they did. It wasn't done in a corner. So persuaded by history. Second persuader, persuaded by prophecy. Twice, Paul sort of says, this is what had been predicted. This is what the prophets have said would happen. Verse 6, it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. I'm not, I'm not coming in with a completely brand new idea that nobody's spoken about before. No, no, no. This is in continuity with the whole sweep of the Old Testament, of the anticipation of a Messiah who would come and who would suffer and who would rise again. the words of scripture anticipated this he says it again in verse 22 God has helped me to this very day so I stand here and testify to small and great alike I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets of Moses said would happen that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles see when someone predicts something and then it happens you pay attention don't you Plenty of political commentators being very busy this week. The ones who accurately predict who's going to be in the runoff. Well, I mean, you listen to those. Are they getting it right? They see who's going to get knocked out each time. You pay attention to people who who get their predictions right. Well, here is the prediction of the Old Testament. Absolutely spot on. So two persuaders. A historical persuader, a prophetic persuader, and then thirdly, if I can put it like this, the, the experience persuader. Paul's own testimony of what happened to him. That's persuasive too. And that's why Paul gets personal in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to him, Do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, oh yeah, short time or long. I hope I can persuade not just you, but everyone else who can hear me in this courtroom today. Persuade all of them to be just like me. Well, okay, maybe not chained up. But otherwise, believing like I believe, in relationship with Christ like I'm in relationship with Christ. I pray that's exactly what you'll become. So as we finish, let me ask, are we persuaded, convinced? And is our conviction revealed in the manner of our living? Uh, In a moment, uh, if you come forward in the family Lord's Supper to receive bread and wine, why why not be making that a mark of your commitment? Why not in your heart be saying to God, I do this because I do believe. I am persuaded. And I want you to help me to live more fully in line with the faith that I profess. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord God, for a, a history uh, of events Uh, for a testimony uh, held for us in Scripture uh, that we can believe in. Help us to do so. Help us to do so in a way that does indeed uh, demonstrate that we have the courage of our convictions. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.